we are in the middle of a series called Beautiful Community, Beautiful Community. And basically what we've been doing is we've been looking at, you know, what does this community of believers, this community of confessors, this community called Christians, what does it look like, right? How, how has, uh, has Christianity transformed us into this new radical humanity? Because hopefully as you've been listening to the various installments of this series, what you've began to pick up is, is that when you become a Christian, God doesn't come in and just make a new or, or a better uh, version of you. It's not like he upgrades you. It's not like you're humanity 2.0, but rather it's a completely different way to be human, a, comp- a completely different type of humanity. Um, and if you have not had the opportunity to go back and to listen to some of those messages, I really encourage you to check out our YouTube page, uh, listen to them, uh, really begin to think about how this applies to you as an individual, but also what does this mean for us together? What does it mean not to just come to church, but to be the church? What does it mean not just to come here and and sort of do sort of routine things that we do, but what does it really mean to be gathered and what does that look like? I hope you guys have been taking advantage of going to the meetups and and, um, all of that because that is so important. In fact, it's crucial for us, if we're really going to understand who Jesus is, we cannot understand him outside of community. It's impossible because Jesus didn't just call you out of something. He called us into something, which is his body. Amen. Amen. So where we're going to go today is we're going to go to Ephesians chapter four, and we're going to read verse 25, and then we're going to jump down to verse 31. Verse 25, and then we're going to jump down to verse 31. Everybody got their Bibles? Ephesians chapter 4. And I know that lately we've been trying to turn these lights on a little bit so people can actually see their text. So I don't know if somebody uh, knows how to do that without blinding everybody. But there's a, there's a not back there, brother, right over here, uh, right over here, right by this uh, first panel. Uh, yep, yep, yep. There's like a little slide thing, little slide. You just kind of push that up a little bit and some kind of light should come on. There we go. All right, let's give it up. Thank you. I don't know who that was, but I can't see you, but thank you. God bless you. All right. So Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 25, it says this, therefore, say therefore. therefore. Yeah. Therefore, Uh, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Y'all can tell this is going to be a good one. (laughs) And And then jump down to verse 31. It says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. This morning, I'm really talking about what it means to be, in some way, what it means to be free. We're talking about uh, forgiveness and the freedom that forgiveness brings, what it means to be free. Now, 
Everybody that's my age um, and older will know this. Everybody that's probably in their 20s and younger, you'll have no idea. But how many of you guys <laughs> might remember this thing called a phone, right? And But not just any phone, but do you remember uh, when you would be out playing or out hanging out with friends and you would have to find a phone booth? Anybody remember phone booths? Can you just raise your hand so I can know I'm not alone? Okay, great. And this is, and so this is what you used to do. For those of you who don't know, is you'd pick up this phone. It was like a little booth on the corner of a street or whatever. And you'd pick it up. You'd put some quarters in. You quarters in, and you'd call whoever to, in order to talk to them. Well, when you're a kid, you don't have quarters. Uh, there's this other thing that you could do. It's called calling collect. So what you do is you would call collect and if the other, and, 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 and they pick up and you could leave a little message saying who you are. Hi, this is Roger. So they would know. And then they would have to either accept or decline. If they accepted, then they would actually take on the bill. There'd be an additional bill that they would have to pay to have this phone call with you. Well, what we would do as kids is we would jump on these uh, phones and we would, I would like dial home, right? And we would dial collect. And then, you know, he says, leave, you know, what's your name? Beep. And then, but instead of saying your name, this is what you do. You say, hi, dad, this is Roger. I just want, you know, I'm going to Billy's house to play for a while. I'll be home for dinner. Okay, don't, don't accept this. Bye. And you hang up. And that was your way of communicating with your parents where you were going to be. So that way they would not be freaking out, right? That way you could tell them that, hey, you're going to go to a friend's house. You're going to hang out. You'll be home when you're going to be home type of thing. You know, and just don't accept the collect call. That was it. And you had to get so much in in this little time frame. Well, in a lot of ways, this message feels like that. There is so much on forgiveness that I almost feel like, man, I just have to, I have this one time, I have to kind of fit it all in. And the Lord really helped me, I think, to try to bring about what I believe uh, is what the Lord would have all of us here this morning, and especially in this series that God has placed on Pastor Phil's heart. Can we just give it up for our pastor? Praise the Lord for him. Yeah, we love you. We love you. Amen and amen. In this passage that we see here, there are vices to avoid and there are virtues to affirm, right? In fact, the entire passage is really Paul's practical exposition of the Ten Commandments. He talks about lying and stealing and so on and so forth, right? You shouldn't do those things. Um, and, and, and what's cr crazy about it is if you were to take this and if you were to then survey other religions, other world religions or other worldviews, you'd notice that they too have a list of vices to avoid and virtues to affirm, right? They have a set of morals that they want their followers to take on. They have an ethical code. Every religion, every worldview does. And many of those are similar to Christianity, right? You know, be nice and be kind and anger is bad and peacemaking is good and slander is bad and holiness is good, etc. But what makes Christianity distinct from all of those other religions and worldviews is the very first word that we read, therefore. Therefore. Therefore, that word makes it distinct. And here's why. Paul says is that if you are a Christian, what makes you distinct from all other religions is the motive and the basis for why we do what we do. Not because that people are nicer. That's not why we're Christians, but because we're new. We're new. We're new. That's a lot. See, in other words, there's first an inward transformation and then there's an outward result, not the other way around. 
And this is completely different than any other worldview that you'll encounter. Let me just give you a crash course, because I had to take one real quick, on the aspects of, uh, of, of, of Greek grammar. In Greek grammar, there are different moods. There are different moods. And two moods are called the imperative and the indicative. The imperative and the indicative. Now, I know you're like, Pastor Rogers, it's really early in the morning, and my brain is not there yet. Don't worry. We'll break this down. Imperative and indicative. The imperative are sort of ethical injunctions or commands that we are to follow. That's the imperative. The indicative are statements of God acting or moving like he loves or he does or he works and so on, okay? So imperative and indicative. And what commentators have noted uh, throughout various generations is that when it comes to Paul, it's interesting because when Paul writes his letters, he always starts with the indicative and ends them with the imperative. He always starts with what it is that God does and ends it with how we are to respond to that. How we are to respond to that. What that means is that God always initiates and we respond rather than we initiate and then God responds. In other words, it's not we act accordingly um, and then God responds with grace and acceptance and love. That's how all other religions work, right? But rather in Christianity, God first acted in love and grace and acceptance. And now we respond to that grace. We respond to that act of love. There is first an inward change. Our hearts and our minds are under new management. And because of that, as a result, there is this beautiful community. Beautiful community. And as I was thinking about what it looks like in particular to this topic today of forgiveness, I was reminded of a parable that Jesus said when he was describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. So I don't know if you remember this, but in Matthew 18, he talks about this parable and he, and he, he talks about this king and, and this king is going and he's going to settle all of his accounts with his servants. He's going to settle all of his accounts with servants and he began to settle them and there was a man who owed him 10 thousand bags of gold. He owed the king 10,000 bags of gold, but the servant could not pay it, could not pay it. And so this is what happens in Matthew 18, verse 26. It says this, at this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's masters took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. Took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. Took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. Now what's interesting is that as the parable keeps going, what happens is that same servant bumps into another person that also owes him money. Just a small amount, but owes him money. Now you would think that because he was just cleared of his debt, that he would have paid it forward. But that's not actually what happens. What happens is he goes to this other guy that owes him a small amount of money and he begins to violently choke him. He gets aggressive and he says, you need to give me my money now. I mean, he goes straight like mob gangster on this guy, right? And all of this anger pours out. He was demanding and cruel. 
So the king heard about this, his master heard about this, and look what happens in verse 32. Then the master called the servant in, the one that he just cleared the debt, and now that guy acted crazy with someone else, right? He just called him in, he said, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Somebody, uh uh-oh, right? Mm -hmm. Come on. (laughs) He's getting red right now is what's happening. In anger, he, uh, his master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Wow. This is how his heavenly father will treat you <laughs> unless you forgive your brother from your heart. <clears throat> Jeez. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord God, for today. I pray that as we dive into this message, God, that you penetrate us, Lord God. Heavenly Father, a lot went into today. People woke up early to set up, and, and, and there's a lot of thought behind what happened, and there's programs that are happening right now, God, but all of that is for not, Holy Spirit, if you are not glorified and if your gospel is not preached, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Really, I just want to talk about really three things when it comes to forgiveness. One is, why is it so crucial? Two is, what is it? And three is, how do you do it? Why is it so crucial? What is it? And how do you do it? And so number one, why is it so crucial? First of all, what I want to do is I kind of want to go right to the sort of hard-hitting part of that parable, right? The the part that looks harsh, right? And yet it's absolutely realistic. See, at the end of the account uh, uh, of this king who forgives his servant a great debt, and then that servant turns and he doesn't become a forgiving person, right? But instead he becomes a a vindictive person, not a gracious person. So the king forgives the servant and the servant in turn does not become a forgiving person. And at the end, what are we told? That that he's not just thrown into jail, but that in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. Okay. Okay. Jesus. So, so let, just to be clear, just to be clear is what you're saying, Jesus is this is that this is how my heavenly father will treat us unless we forgive other people. So, so, so is what you're saying, Jesus, that if I don't forgive, then that will lead to bondage. It, my, if I do not forgive, then I will be imprisoned. I will be bound. I will be chained and, and, and even leads to some sort of eternal punishment. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? That, that wait a minute, if I don't forgive somebody, that now I'm going to hell? Right? And then you might be like, well, okay, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we told throughout the New Testament that we're not saved by our good works, that we're not saved uh, by being moral or our moral performance, right? But it's in what Jesus has done. So, so, so in other words, how can you say, well, if I don't forgive, I don't do this act, then I'm not going to go to heaven. Well, actually, that's not what Jesus is saying. See, One of the ways that you can understand this parable is sort of by putting it into context and realizing what Jesus says elsewhere. In fact, just a few verses later, when he begins to talk about how there are people who are doing these things and they come before him, right? And they don't make it into heaven. And and he begins to tell them, he says, well, listen, the poor you didn't feed. The needy you didn't clothe. Remember that? Remember when he says all this? You didn't care, the, 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 the sick you didn't care. You didn't provide shelter for the homeless. You didn't visit the, pri- the prisoner. And therefore, eternal punishment. Now, but when you read that, what you, what you actually see is this. What he says is, the reason is, is why? 
Because when you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. When you didn't do that, these things to them, when you didn't clothe them or, or, or care for them or provide shelter for them, then you didn't do it to me. When you failed to do it to them, it proved that you failed to do it to me. In other words, another, what, what, what Jesus is saying here is this. When you closed your heart to the poor, that proved that you closed your heart to me. Because if you have a relationship with me, if you respond to the love and the grace that I've shown you, then that response will look like this. And if it doesn't, then you've closed your heart to me. See? And that parable helps us understand what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is this, is that, in fact, if you, if you did not open your heart in mercy to the other servant, then that proved that you never opened your heart to my mercy. If you didn't open your heart enough to give grace to that other servant, then that is proof that you actually didn't open your heart to the grace I was giving you. Jesus is not saying if you forgive, you'll go to heaven, and if you don't forgive, you'll go to hell, right? That's not what's happening here. But rather, he's saying something deeper. He's saying that, that, that it's not just the act, but it's the motive behind the act. It's your heart condition. If you don't forgive your brother, your sister, your neighbor, then that is a sign that your heart has never really been open to the grace of God. Write this down. In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is a response to the grace I've been given. See, what Jesus is saying is that there is absolutely, one of the ways, one of the absolutely wonderful ways to tell if you're in a real relationship with God is on the basis of how you forgive. Of how you forgive. Because if not, you'll actually end up in prison. You'll end up bound. See, when you stay angry at somebody, when you hold a grudge, and come on, some of y'all, you know how to hold a grudge. You know how to hold a grudge. You've been, you've been holding that grudge for years. Years. All right? When you do that, when you refuse to forgive... What does it do? Oh, when I do that, when, when I want to hold a grudge, right? It, what, what does that do? It makes me feel so righteous. Right? It, ma it makes you feel like you were so wronged. It makes you feel self-pity. It makes you self-centered. It makes you self-righteous. And you are becoming less like Jesus. See, because here's the gospel. If you've been forgiven an infinite debt so that every single moment of your life is just a gift of grace, then th th if that's true, then you're like this first servant. He had been forgiven an infinite debt. And because of that, he should have been gracious to everybody. If you believe the gospel and you hold a grudge, at the very least, what it shows is that you are actually blocking the effect of the gospel in your life, or you're kidding yourself, and maybe you don't believe the gospel at all. Either way, spiritually speaking, to not forgive somebody is a life and death situation, and you are in prison, my friend. You're not free. You're not free. 
You're not free because what happens is, is that, is that you have allowed somebody else to hold the thermostat of your life. You see what I'm saying? So somebody that I'm mad at walks into the room. Before they, were in the, before they were in the room, I was having a good time, you know, laughing it up, telling some joke. Then here comes sister so-and-so. Here comes brother whatever coming in. And all of a sudden, boop, 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 boop. I feel angry. I feel upset. What, what, whatever situation, you know what I mean? And, and, and what that means is that I have given that person the thermostat to my life. They now affect how I feel in a room or if I go to somewhere. Well, who's going to be there? Right? Who's going to be, you know, oh, we're going to have a church picnic. Well, who's going to be there? Oh, well, actually, there's a few of us that want to go hang out. We want to invite you. Well, who's going to be there? Well, does it matter? Right? And so, and so this is what happens is, is, is you're showing that it's blocking them because, because you're becoming self-centered. You, you, you continue to regard them as if they are liable to you and they owe you. But let me tell you something about forgiveness is sometimes you're going to have to forgive even if the person never asks for it. Wow, that's right. That is so right. Never asks for it. Pastor Sherry's in the room this morning, and I can guarantee you that she has probably had to counsel many people who have had to go through the process of forgiveness without the other person that, that, that offended them to ever ask for it. Right? Watch this. Write this down. Your level of forgiveness determines your level of freedom. Your level of forgiveness determines your level of freedom. Friedrich Bachner said this. He said this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past to roll over your tongue at the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain that you're gonna give back to them. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at the feast is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. My goodness. Now do you see why it's so crucial? Because this is a great sign of the real spiritual condition of your heart, of your spiritual maturity, is if you forgive or not. This is why it's crucial. This is why it's crucial. See, some of you have people in your life that you uh, have made pretty mad and that you're pretty mad at. And some of you are actually in denial about that fact. You think you've forgiven them. Some of you have people who you definitely have not forgiven, that you don't want to see, that you want to avoid, and you know you have a grudge. You know you do. If some of them are for light, non-serious offenses, while others are for damaging, destroying offenses that has come in and hurt you and abused you and took something from you. Some of you are just irritated by others. Some of you are sickened by others. And it has really disrupted the relationship. It's awkward. It's awkward. Wow. Number one, why it's crucial. Number two, what is it? 
See, what's beautiful about this story is the is that this narrative gives us really three parts. If you look at if you really look at what the king did with this servant, he, he does three things, right? He if you remember, he took pity on him, he counseled his debt, and he let him go. So when we talk about what is forgiveness, this, this really displays it beautifully. It really is taking pity, counseling a debt, and letting them go. See, if you want to avoid the feast of fools, if you want to avoid being there at the feast and, and wolfing down something only to discover that what you're eating, what you're devouring is your own self, if you want to avoid that, being twisted and being put into prison and anger, the first thing you have to do is take pity on the person that's wronged you. Now, I have to define this a little bit because what that means to us is a little bit different than what it means here in scripture because to us it means you know you feel sorry for somebody and, and yes that's true but 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 here in scripture what, what 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 Jesus is really trying to say is this is that you're not just feeling sorry for them right but it literally means that your heart goes out to the person your heart goes out to the person that's a beautiful English idiom for us to just picture in our head right our, the heart goes out to the person. What does it mean for the heart to go out? It, it, it's a vivid term, and it means this, that you begin to even identify with them, that, that you're putting your heart in them, in their life, and you feel something of what they feel, that you identify with the perpetrator. Now, hold on. See, what it means is when somebody's wronged you is that you have to deliberately do the intentional work of reminding yourself what you have in common with that person. See, you put yourself in their place and you empathize and you sympathize. And that's not the sort of thing that your heart and my heart really wants to do. That's why you guys were shouting amen on all the other parts. In that point, you were silent. Right? I already, I already set myself up for it. I didn't, get, I didn't get emotionally hurt by that. I forgive you. Your heart wants to sort of accentuate the differences between you and the perpetrator. Well, they're like this, and I'm, I'm not, I could never be like that. They did this, I would never do that. You know, you begin to differentiate between you and the wrongdoer. But according to the text, what you have to do is you have to, uh, it, what you have to do in order to avoid the prison of anger is to actually identify as much as you can to the person and say, wait a minute, how are we? the same. Instead of saying how I'd never do that or how am I different, how am I the same? In one of his essays on forgiveness, and I hope I'm going to slaughter his name, is uh, it's Miroslav Vlof, Vlof. I tried to Google it and I just couldn't figure out how to say it. There you go. Anybody else can help me out for the, for, for the 11 o'clock service? Let me know. Um, but this is what he says. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, just as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. There's a prayer that Jesus tells us to pray. And at one point in this prayer, he says this. He says, forgive me as I have forgiven those who have sinned against me. Forgive me as I have, forgi as I have forgiven them. You know what that's really saying? It's really saying this, Lord, 
please treat me the same way that I treat my enemies. Wow. See, you can stay mad at somebody and you can continue to feel superior to them and tell yourself you're superior to them. But what you'll do is you'll exclude yourself from the community of sinners. You refuse to admit that you may not do exactly the same thing that that person did. But guess what? You guys are both sinners in need of a savior. If nothing else, if there's nothing else you can relate to that, you can say this, that the one thing that we have in common is that we are both sinners in need of a savior. Wow. Wow. Because you can't exclude yourself from the community of sinners. You can't exclude the person from the community of humans. You can't caricaturize them in such a way that makes them do that. So that's the first thing, pity on them. Second thing is this, is you have to counsel the debt. <laughs> you have to counsel the debt. Yeah. Notice that his heart went out on him, he identified with the perpetrator, right? And he counseled the debt. Now here we are at sort of at the heart of what it means to forgive. If that wasn't hard enough, just wait for this one, right? What does it mean to counsel the debt? In fact, if you want to understand forgiveness or even the whole story, you need to realize that this key is important. To recognize the size of the debt of the servant is important. How much did he owe the king? The, the parable says 10,000 bags of gold. That would be trillions of dollars that somehow he owed. I don't know. He stole it. He mismanaged it. He borrowed it, whatever it was. But something happened and he owed trillions of dollars. Now, when you think of a servant, right? You, kind of, I, don't, you know, I don't know what you think of when you think of a servant, but you may be a butler or something like that, right? You think, well, wait a minute, how could a household servant have trillions of dollars of the king's money? Well, he was a servant, but, but actually what he was was he was a regional governor. In other words, he was a king under an emperor because that's how it worked in the Roman Empire. He was a king of a region, but he was under the emperor. And so uh, who paid the salary of all the Roman soldiers? Well, it was Caesar out of Caesar's funds. Who paid for all the bridges? Well, it was Caesar out of Caesar's funds. Now, of course, Caesar seized, right? And all of the, through conquests and different things like that. And the money came to him. But the point is, is the money didn't come to him and it stayed with him. But it went out to these regional governors to do what they wanted to do with it. Yeah. And so what does the emperor do? The emperor, the king, looks at the servant who owes trillions of dollars and says, your debt's been canceled. What does that mean? What does that really mean? It means that he absorbed the debt himself. That's what it means. He paid it himself. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is paying the debt rather than making the perpetrator pay. Wow. How does that work? How does that work? See, if I were to go to your house and maybe you would invite me over and you were to ask me to sit on a chair, right? That there is a, there, there's a possibility, a small little percent maybe, that when I sit on the chair, I break it, right? right. Might happen, might happen. 
And if I were to come over and sit in your house and I break this chair, I'm going to say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassed. Let me pay for it, right? And, and, and you might be like, ah, oh, no, don't worry about it. I got it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, Pastor Roger. You can come break chairs. It's fine, whatever, you know. <laughs> don't worry about it. You know, here I am. I mismanaged my weight and I broke this chair, you know. Now, for some of us that are big, we already know that when we go and look in a room, we want to look for the sturdiest thing. You know what I'm saying? We already know. We don't look for some, you know, fragile little thing. But sometimes you just don't know. It's not even testing it, you know. You kind of do a little test. But maybe I, wasn't, maybe I was just out of my mind that day, and I decided to sit down on something, and I broke it. He said, don't worry. I'll pay for it, right? He said, forget it. Don't worry about it, Pastor Roger. Right? See, and I, what does that mean? That means you forgave the debt. Now, what does that actually mean? Does that mean there's no cost? No. Somebody has to pay for the replacement of the chair. And what you're saying is, Pastor Roger, you don't have to pay for it. Well, then who will? Well, you do. Because you'll go out and buy another chair, won't you? You have to replace it. You pay for it. See, somebody has to pay. Either Pastor Roger got to pay or the person that invited me over got to pay. Because when there's a loss, somebody has to pay that loss. It's you or the other. See, you can either make the perpetrator pay or you can forgive, which means you pay. There's this movie and, uh, called the, uh, the, the Miserables and there's a, an actor, or not an actor, but there's a main character in it. Um, and what this main character does, his name is Sean, and he goes to this house, this priest, and, and he is stealing from this priest. I don't know if you remember the movie, but, but he's stealing all this fine silverware and putting it in a bag. Remember that? He steals all this fine, and, and, and he runs away, and some police officers catch him. What they do is they, 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 they see him and they open up his bag and they say, wait a minute, where'd you get all this silver from? And he says, well, this priest gave it to me. Well, which priest? Show me. Take me to the priest. So they go and they take him to the priest. They knock on the door and they say, we, you know, we're so sorry, uh, but, but there's a man here and, and, and he has all this silver, uh, fine silver, silverware uh, in his bag and, and, and he says, you gave it to him. Well, the priest looked at the stuff and knew right away that that was his and the man stole it. And, and so the officer said, is it true? Did you give this to him? And the priest says, of course it's true. But what I don't understand is why didn't you take the candlesticks? And he, call, and he calls his wife and he says, here, whoever it was, says, come, give him these candlesticks. And he begins to fill up his bag with more stuff. Remember that? <laughs> he takes on the debt. Wow. Well, but how does that work, Pastor Roger, if we're not talking about money? What do you do when somebody really wrongs you? Because there's always a loss. Maybe you've lost reputation. Or maybe you've lost an opportunity that you'll never get back again. Maybe you've lost trust or peace or courage. There's a real debt. And it's not monetary debt. There's a debt. There's an emotional debt. There's a mental debt. You feel it, you see. And you feel the person owes you. You feel the person is liable to you because what they've done emotionally or mentally, what they've taken from you, what are you going to do? My friend, there's only two things. 
Either they pay for it or you do. See, you can make them pay. You could try to hurt them or gossip about them or slander them or always put them under some sort of guise about, let me warn you about this person, you know, or slice up their reputation when you see them. You could be cold and mean or whatever it is. You can just withdraw from their friendship or you can, you know, berate them. You can, you can really tell them off and try to make them feel horrible. Right? You can do that. You can rejoice and savor at anything wrong that happens in their life. If you think that person has suffered, there's something inside of you that says, good, I'm glad. And maybe, they, maybe at some point their suffering begins in a small way to pay for the debt that they owe you. But see, what happens when you do that is you don't put them in prison, you put yourself in prison. Because unforgiveness arrests you. It shackles you. It limits you. And it makes you less like Jesus. The other alternative is you pay. You pay. Well, what does that do? Well, it cuts off the oxygen to self-pity and self-righteousness and self-centeredness and anger. Bit. By bit, it grants forgiveness eventually. The anger, the hurt, the mistrust begins to recede, and you begin to feel forgiveness. This is the place I really want you to listen. If you haven't listened to anything yet, listen to this, and I hope you understand and get this completely, because this is contrary to most of what maybe we've been taught, which is this, is that you've probably learned everywhere else that you have to wait until you feel forgiven to forgive. But according to the Bible, you grant forgiveness even before you feel it. Even before you feel it. Now, that's not to say there's not a process that goes behind this. That's not to say that there's not something you go through. But if you come to a place where you say, well, I have to start feeling less angry in order to forgive them, then you might not ever grant forgiveness. And you'll continue to be in prison. Uh, My mom and I had a, uh, well, we didn't really have a relationship uh, that much until my wife and I got together. So uh, for those of you who may not know, my mom left my sister and I when we were small. And and then we'd see her once in a while for a time when I was 11, I went to go live with her. And uh, she was uh, living in this like hotel that was uh, and anyway, and so how, you, how she paid for that was every night she'd go and prostitute herself and stuff. And, and so there was just this, you know, damaged relationship there. And, and then she ended up giving her heart to Jesus Christ uh, when she was in prison. And, and uh, in, in, in this time, it was a real transformation. It wasn't kind of like the things that happened the other time she was in jail. Uh, and, and then her and I started having this relationship after Beck and I got married and, uh, and I thought I had forgiven her. I thought I did. I, I, really, I really thought I did. Until she got sick and we had to start caring for her. And I remember one day I went to the store because I had to get her Depends. And she was young. She's still young, but she got cancer and a few other things. And, 
And so her body started to not function well. And so I, I remember going to the Depends, and I remember getting these Depends and feeling so angry, and I started to cry, and I started to get hurt because I was like, why am I taking care of this woman that never one day in her life took care of me? Why am I doing this? I'm going out and buying you diapers, and you never bought me diapers. What, what is going on? Like, and all of this anger and hurt just started pouring out, and I was so, I, I think part of it was just, I was just shocked because I, I thought that, you know, it was over. I thought I was over it. But, but I wasn't because there was still a part of me that feels like, mom, you owe me. You owe me love. You owe me good memories. You owe me, mom. It's because of you I had to go to foster care. It's because of you I was abused. It's because of you. You owe me. And so I felt superior to her. Yeah. I felt like somehow I was morally better than her. Mm. And that somehow she needed Jesus more than I did. Mm. Wow. See, write this down. Unforgiveness is a way that you keep power and live in your own self-righteousness. Wow. Thirdly is let him go. And we're going to be ending here in just a little bit. I'm rushing. Let him go. You say, well, wait a minute. Let him go. Didn't he actually do something wrong? Shouldn't there be a consequence? Shouldn't there be some sort of penalty? What about justice? Yes, and sometimes, sometimes there has to be that. But see, we want to instantly jump to consequence and penalty. We want to instantly seek justice. Now, maybe that's necessary. Maybe. But here's the great irony. Unless you forgive before you pursue justice you'll never really pursue justice. You'll just produce vengeance. And the Bible says that vengeance belongs to God. Now, I cannot go one more without addressing something else. Remember the interview with Donald Trump when they were talking about faith? And it came to the part when it had to do with repentance. And he said this, he says, why do I need to ask God for forgiveness when I've done nothing wrong? Now, that's not a statement political about, you know, whatever. But, that's, but, but actually, he, he's actually speaking from a, a, very, a very strong point of our society where our society says this, the only sin is to say that there's a sin. The only sin is for you to tell me that I'm doing something wrong. And let me just say this, there are people here today who not only need to forgive, but you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to go to someone you've hurt, you've done something wrong to, and ask to be forgiven. Yeah. And if you think, I will not do that, wow. or well, they started it, or well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done that, or maybe you're just too proud, maybe your pride has forced you not to seek forgiveness, then my friend, you are in prison as well. All right, well, there it is. It's easy as that. Hope you guys took good notes. Now go and do it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor Roger. How do you do it? How do you do it? Number three. The first resource isn't the resource that I think most people in our individualistic American society will think about. But according to the Bible, your first resource, even though it's not your main resource, is community. 
Your church is a resource for helping you, discipling you, supporting you, holding you accountable to forgive, to repent, to keep your relationships straight so people don't just start avoiding each other, so relationships don't just break apart. See, forgiveness isn't just an individual thing, but it's a community thing. When you look at the passage in Ephesians that we read, what you see is you see community breaking acts and community building acts. If lying breaks down community, then truth builds it up. If malice breaks down community, then compassion builds it up. Unforgiveness breaks down community, then forgiveness builds it up. Look at this, verse 31, it says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. What Paul is saying is unforgiveness will make you like these things. It will turn you into this. If you are wronged in some way, hurt, betrayed, then it can make you a person that is hardened. Right? If you ever had anything stolen from your car, or if you've ever been mugged before, then what does it do? Well, it does a lot of things, but one thing it does is it makes you less trusting of others. Not Not just less trusting of that individual, but less trust. And now you're putting walls up. Now you're putting walls up, right? You become less generous, less trusting, less loving. And what's crazy is unforgiveness turns you into the sinner. You go from needing forgiveness to needing to be forgiven. Some of you, because of what you've gone through, the trauma that you've experienced, the hurt, the, 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 the dissatisfaction, the disappointment, some of you, what that means is you have began to, to put up walls. You've become less open, less loving, less vulnerable to allow people in your life. You've become hard. You've become less human. You've become less real. There's a childhood story in... I've shared this before, but of the Velveteen Rabbit, this child book, Velveteen Rabbit. And in it, the Velveteen Rabbit is talking to the skin horse. And they begin to have this conversation because they're both toys, but, but, but this horse is older and wise. And the Velveteen Rabbit says to the skin horse, he says, what does it mean to be real? Said the Velveteen Rabbit to the skin horse. The skin horse says it's something that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Well, does it happen all at once, like being wound up? Or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become it. It takes time. That's why it doesn't happen to people who are fragile or sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you lose the joints and are very shabby. See, this conversation between the rabbit, the velveteen rabbit and the skin horse is this, is the skin horse is teaching the rabbit that what it means to be real doesn't mean that your life is just full of fun and games, but that love comes with risk, risk of being hurt, risk of pain and sorrow, but that's what being real is. And when you begin to turn your heart away from that, you become hardened and you're not becoming more human, you're becoming less human. 
there is a communal nature to forgiveness. You say, well, how can I ever identify with the perpetrator? How can I ever identify the person that has wronged you? You know how? On the cross. See, Jesus Christ identified with you. His heart went out to you. That was the ultimate example. On the cross, he became you, you see. He took your penalty. Talk about identifying with the perpetrator. He did it. (laughs) The only way you and I are going to be free to forgive, free from the prison of offense, is if we are melted by the beauty of the king that became a servant. Watch this. To the degree you understand how much Christ has forgiven you is to the degree that you will be free to forgive others. Some of you today, you are wounded and the wounds run deep. You're scarred. You're damaged because of the pain, hurt, and offenses. Isolation, loneliness. And you have built up walls to try to protect yourself. But what you didn't realize is as you're laying down the brick and as you're putting up the walls, what you're actually building is not protection. You're building your own prison. And before you know it, you wake up and you realize you're not free. You're not free. In just a moment, Pastor Phil's going to come up and we're going to partake in communion. And I cannot think of a more fitting time for us to take communion than on the topic of forgiveness. See, because one of the things that the instruction that the Bible gives us is before you take communion is to examine yourself. And some of you need to do that today. Some of you need to examine, wait a minute, is there somebody that I have offended, that I have hurt, that I have damaged, and I have tried my best to go and, and, and repent and ask for their forgiveness and mend this relationship? Or am I too proud? Or am I thinking, well, they started it, or I did it because of this. For others of you, you need to examine yourself because you've been holding on to hurt and to pain and to anger and to grudges, big and small. And you're in prison. And Jesus wants you to freely forgive. See, because when you understand the gravity of your sin, the absolute wickedness, perversiveness, demonic depravity, the evilness of your sin, your sin. Well, I didn't do it. That, no, your sin. Yeah, but I didn't do that. Of it. No, your sin, the evilness and depravity of your sin and that Jesus paid it, eternally paid a debt that you would never be able to pay, ever be able to pay, ever be able to pay. And yet Jesus died and he bled and he hung on a tree, you see, for you and for me. When you understand the depths of that, when you look at the death, when you praise the certainty of his promise, the promise that you're going to come back for me again, God, the promise that you're going to come back and all justice will be in your hands and you will restore all things. And those promises that I will wait for you, I'm, I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. And while I'm waiting on you, I'm going to be a community, a beautiful community that you've designed us to be. And I'm going to forgive freely while I wait on you, Jesus. While I wait on you, while I worship at the reality then we can say, I'm going to wait on you. Why? Because I've tasted your goodness. 
I'll trust in your promise. I'm going to wait on you because I've tasted your goodness and I trust in your promise. I'm going to wait on you. And while I'm waiting on you, I'm, I'm looking at my heart and I'm, and, and I'm asking God, please help me to be free from the pain, the disappointment, the anger, and the frustration of unforgiveness.